Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from the battlefront, analyse the Ukrainian liberation of Robotine, and look at the Ukraine policies of Republican politicians as the race for the Republican nomination starts to heat up. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 29th of August one year and 186 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, Senior Foreign Correspondent Roland Oliphant, Foreign Correspondent James Kilner, and US Editor Tony Diver. I started by asking Francis to sum up the major news from the weekend. Thanks, David. The major military news from the weekend is the fallout from the liberation of the southern frontline village of Robotina after Ukraine achieved what it claims is a major breakthrough in Russian defences. Now, Roland and James are going to discuss this shortly, but the strategic importance of the settlement is believed to far outweigh its size, being about 10k south of the town of Orkhiv in Zaporizhia on an important road towards Tokmak, which is a Russian-occupied road and rail hub that will likely be Ukraine's next target. And there'll be more on this question later. Today, however, Kyiv's general staff is saying its forces have achieved success within the recaptured frontiers and are attacking detected enemy targets with artillery as well as carrying out counter-battery measures. One prominent Russian military blogger called Romanov described the current situation as very dangerous for Russian forces in a post earlier today. And indeed, separate Russian sources have described the potential vulnerabilities of their forces in the area over the past week or so. So I think it's very safe to say that something substantial is indeed happening there. Elsewhere, Ukraine is believed to have been shelling occupied Donetsk overnight. The Russian-backed authorities there claim one person was killed and seven others injured in the attacks, with several infrastructure facilities also sustaining damage. 
One official claimed that cluster munitions were used, but have not provided any evidence of that. Russia's defence ministry has claimed that it's downed Ukrainian drones over the Tula and Belgorod regions in the past 24 hours. But more significantly in the air battle, Ukraine's Southern Operational Command is saying that it has destroyed a Russian radar system in the Herzon Oblast, releasing pretty dramatic drone footage that they say shows their strike against it. Now, this piece of kit has an estimated cost of $200 million and was first unveiled in June last year as this attempt by Russia to show the kind of weapons they had at their disposal, or technology, should I say, they had at their disposal, uh, which they claimed Ukraine did not. So the destruction of this is pretty embarrassing from an optics perspective, um, let alone in the strategic sense. And this news is followed up by further optimistic pronouncements about arms getting to Ukraine. So the Ukraine's defence minister, Alexei Reznikov, was quoted as saying, by the end of this month or at the beginning of September, there will be further good news about powerful players arriving on Ukraine's arms market. He then went on to add that the production of domestic weapons is being increased, something also underlined by President Zelensky in his nightly address last night. He said that Ukraine is maximising production capacity of domestic weapons. It's worth underlining that because, of course, this has been a criticism that has been made from some quarters of Ukraine that it has not been producing enough of its own weapons, that it has been relying extensively on weapons uh, provided by Western powers and uh, sort of enemies of Ukraine have used this as a propaganda line to claim that it's a corrupt country and that why isn't it developing its own weaponry, etc. Whereas, of course, it's worth underlining that a lot of the technology that Ukraine has been using in terms of weaponry is very advanced, particularly from the United States, and that you can't just convert a factory into producing that kind of advanced weaponry. This isn't the Second World War when we could just uh, get a factory churning out AKs overnight. This is far, far more complicated in terms of the weapons that are being provided. So I just thought I'd just stress that. Now, whilst we're on the subject of arms, in their daily briefing, the Institute for the Study of War presents intriguing revelations sourced from a Ukrainian intelligence official. Uh, these disclosures suggest that there is a possibility of Russian military units having moderately resupplied their inventory of precision-guided projectiles through conservation efforts undertaken during the summer this year. The Ukrainian sources outline that potential Russian strategies could encompass a renewed and broader initiative targeting critical Ukrainian infrastructure uh, sometime during the upcoming autumn. Nevertheless, their evaluations indicate that it is improbable for Russia to have sufficiently renewed their arsenal to sustain an operation on the magnitude of the extensive assaults experienced in the winter of last year. So if it's true that they are indeed seeking to uh, build up their reserves of these weapons, then we can perhaps expect to see some of the attacks, the terrible attacks, not only on critical infrastructure, but also on civilian targets that we saw last year. But it would appear that they have not got the capacity to launch them on the same scale, which would certainly tally with our own work on this. And also it is, of course, worth stressing that it's in a very different situation than last year because the Ukrainians have now got capabilities of defensive systems that were uh, extremely advanced and were provided them later after uh, those attacks that we saw. So just worth remembering that. But as I say, the big news today is regarding these Ukrainian military advances on the battlefields. And I'm handing over to James and Roland for that because they've, of course, been covering this in more detail over the weekend. Well, thank you 
very much, Francis Sternley, for that summation there. Uh, Roland, can I come to you first and then James? Roland, what would you like to add to Francis's analysis on the significance of Robotina? And can I ask you as well how the Russians have responded to this? Mm. So uh, Robotina is it's what the Ukrainians have been fighting towards since the beginning of this offensive about two months ago. So they've, they finally reached an, an objective was set that was set a long time ago and that we think they were meant to get to what hoped to get to much earlier. And the significance of it is, is it, it brings this salient that the, the Ukrainians have driven into the Russian lines around here, kind of south of Arikhiv, is now bringing them up against the first of the vaunted Surovikin line. So this uh, deeply entrenched system of defences that the Russians built over winter and spring of dragon's teeth and anti-tank ditches and reinforced, you know, concrete trenches and firing positions. The first part of this offensive was to get to that line. The next stage is to breach it. And the stage after that is to exploit the breach if they can do that. So they're just pushing up against it now. To put this in context, um, it's about taking about two months to reach Robertinia. Um, it has picked up the pace, very, very rough estimates, but I think they've covered about three kilometers in the past two weeks, 10 days, which is kind of doubling what they'd done in the previous month and a half. But bear in mind, the advance so far is only about six miles, if that. Now, from Robotinia to Tokmak, you're talking roughly 20 kilometers or 14 miles. And from Tokmak to Melitopol, you're talking another 50 kilometers. So, so these are the, the distances that we're talking about. And just, just another note on the landscape. I mean, one of the reasons it is so difficult to move forward, if you look on a map, get, get a satellite map out of, of this part of Ukraine, you'll see basically the area is divided. The entire landscape is cut up into fields that are, you know, a kilometre or more across square. Those fields are divided by tree lines. Everyone digs into the tree lines because it's the only cover anywhere. That also means that everyone knows where you're hiding. Um, so there's not that much cover. You've got to cross these fields, which are heavily mined. There is basically no concealment. So the idea of, you know, achieving surprise is for the birds, really. That, that's the landscape they're fighting across. And that's got a lot to do, I think, with why it's so very, very difficult to move forward quickly without taking quite heavy casualties. Um, and there is a real significant worry about how much ammunition the Ukrainians are going to have to, you know, have they going to have the, the resources to to push through to that moment. The, the other point to note, of course, is that over the past couple of weeks, we began to see these these briefings coming out, mostly from anonymous American officials linked to kind of American papers of record, the, the New York Times, Washington Post, outposts like that, basically saying the Ukrainians have got it wrong and the offensive is is going to fail because they're not doing what we said. And one of the things the Americans were saying was that we think that they should concentrate more forces on this direction here, on this main thrust down towards Melitopol from Arikhiv. So I, I think it's quite possible that the progress we're seeing may be partly in a response to these discussions that have been going on between the Ukrainians and their allies. Maybe the Ukrainians have begun to concentrate more forces uh, on this area, as I said, yet to see how long this can be sustained and whether it achieves a crack, uh, a break in the Russian line that can be exploited rapidly. How the Russians have um, responded to this is also quite interesting. So a, a couple of days ago, kind of late last week, we began to get these signs that elements of the uh, 76th Guards Air Assault Division have become showing up in this area in response to the Ukrainian advance. Now, the 76th are 
elite. I mean, you know, not, not kind of special, special forces, but they are a really elite, tough, go-to airborne unit. They're the kind of unit who the Kremlin has always reached for first when it was doing something. You know, Fort in Chechnya was one of the units that was thrown in for the first invasion of uh, Donbass, have been all around the front in this war. So and it looks like they've been brought from other parts of the front further east. So we know that the Russians use their airborne forces in this war as a kind of, as a mobile reserve, as an elite that they can throw in where to, to, to stop a crisis. So the fact that these guys are arriving, we think they're arriving in this area, suggests the Russians are genuinely worried and that they feel that they have got to uh, make a decision about, OK, where are we going to put our, our best guys? This looks like the crisis point. Let's respond to it. Well, thank you very much, Francis and Roland. James Kilner, you were following this story and reporting on it over the weekend. Could I just ask for your impressions, really, of some of the, the material or the videos and the reports you were seeing coming out of the fighting around Robotine? And obviously, from the Ukrainian side, there's an idea that potentially now they're coming up against the Surovikin line, they might be able to go faster at this point. What do you make of that and why do they think that? Hi, David. I think that Francis and Roland have pretty much nailed it. This is clearly a significant uh, military action by Ukraine and possibly military success. Uh, They're claiming it to be a success anyway. If you look around the Russian military blogger telegram scene, they're less decisive and they say there is fighting still going on around the outskirts of uh, Robotnya. And that tallies with what Roland has been telling us, that uh, the elite parachute soldiers are turning up to, to to strengthen the area. It's certainly an objective that both sides consider to be important. As Francis was saying, it, it lies on this on the road towards Melitopol and also Berdyansk, the port on the Sea of Azov, which Russia's been using to load up stolen grain from Ukraine and, and, and send send out and export. And it really was meant to be an achievable objective within a week or so of the initial start of this uh, counter-offensive, which was at least a couple of months ago, maybe 10 weeks ago. And as Roland said, Ukraine managed to advance now six, seven or eight miles from the start line. So they are, you know, significantly behind their own schedule. Their schedule appears to have been, you know, incredibly overly optimistic when it was laid out. There, There were some US intelligence briefings to the Washington Post about 10 days ago, which said that uh, Ukraine wasn't going to achieve its main objective during this counteroffensive this year, which was to reach Melitopol and to split occupied Kherson region and occupied Crimea from the occupied areas of Donbass. So, yes, Ukraine are claiming a major breakthrough, possibly. I think um, we need to see more evidence of this. And so I'm slightly more cautious. As as far as the social media videos and photographs that was forming the basis of my, some of my reporting over the weekend, it did show very heavy fighting in uh, Robotnya, serious in, infantry manoeuvres, etc., etc., heavy foliage, machine guns, all this sort of stuff that we've gotten used to now. And on the outskirts uh, of the town, the, these broken tanks and uh, APCs from both sides. Thanks very much, James. We'll come back to you later because you wrote up quite a few stories over the weekend we'd love to talk to you about. Before we go to Tony Diver, our US editor, um, Francis, would you like to just run us through some of the other diplomatic and political news we should be across uh, this afternoon? 
Certainly. Well, obviously, we were all flabbergasted at the death of Prigozhin last week. And there have been further shocks this morning in that Putin has said he has no plans to attend the funeral of the Wagner Group leader. That's coming from the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov. He told reporters that the Kremlin did not know about any planned funeral arrangements, saying that it was a matter for the family. This is amid speculation growing in St. Petersburg that the funeral could be held as soon as today, which would mean, surprise, surprise, that Prigozhin is being denied a state funeral, something that he is technically entitled to after he was awarded the Hero of Russia order prior to his march on Moscow for his activities in Ukraine. As we discussed last week, it would seem that his death is being marked in Russia with as little fanfare as possible, a rather ignoble end to an ignoble man. And we will just have to see what happens, whether he is buried today or tomorrow. But regardless, it does seem that this is going to happen very quickly and very quietly indeed. In other political developments, the European Union should make a bold move and accept new members by 2030, according to its president, Charles Michel. He made the remarks at an international strategic forum attended by Western Balkan leaders, many of them running countries seeking to join the bloc in the long term. I'll quote from him, I believe we must be ready on both sides by 2030 to enlarge. This is ambitious, but necessary. It shows that we are serious. Not reforming on our side before the next enlargement would be a fundamental mistake. It only makes sense for a new member state to join a union that is functioning well, that's efficient. Now, for context, the EU has currently 27 member states with six Western Balkan states, Albania, Bosnia, Kosovo, Montenegro, North Macedonia and Serbia at different stages in the process of joining the bloc. Last year, Moldova and Ukraine were given candidate status, seen as sending a signal to Russia that its hostile activities in both countries were having the opposite impact of their intention of bringing them back into the Russian orbit. But I think that for all of these warm words, the prospect of many of these countries, and I would include Ukraine in this, joining the European Union is a pipe dream in that timescale. Within the bloc, there are, as we've discussed in the past, huge fears as to what it would mean for the EU economy, not least agriculturally. Agricultural subsidies would likely uh, go for a move away from France to Ukraine, for instance, were they to join the bloc. It would also have major impacts on migration flows, something that we know has already had quite a destabilizing factor in many countries within Europe in recent years. It would also have an impact on core voting blocs. The EU has qualified majority voting, which currently favours the major powers like France and Germany. And were all these countries to join, or even just one or two of them, the balance of power would begin to tilt quite substantially further eastwards to countries that have rather different agendas on defence, on Russia, and are also more culturally conservative, which plays into this as well. And speaking of that subject, the Pope today has come under heavy criticism for remarks he made when speaking in a video speech to Catholic youth at, uh, in St. Petersburg on Friday. He told them, and I quote, You are heirs of the great Russia, the great Russia of saints, of rulers, the great Russia of Peter I, that's Peter the Great to you and I, Catherine II, that's Catherine the Great to you and I, that empire, great, enlightened, a country of great culture and great humanity. 
Never renounce this legacy. You are heirs of the great mother Russia. Go with this and thank you. Thank you for your way of being, for your being Russians. Now, this has come under heavy criticism that this is feeding Russian narratives of imperialism and conquest and self-glorification. And it's got so bad in the past few days that the Vatican has had to release a statement saying that the Pope had no intention of glorifying past Russian imperialism, of which, of course, many of these historical figures that he cited were involved in. I'll quote from the Vatican, the Pope intended to encourage young people to preserve and promote all that is positive in the great Russian cultural and spiritual heritage and certainly not to exalt imperialist logic and government personalities mentioned to indicate some historical periods of reference. Now, Ukraine said that the comments were deeply regrettable and described the improvised last section of his speech as fundamentally imperialist propaganda, whilst the Kremlin... Uh, not surprisingly, has welcomed the remarks very robustly this morning. Now, for right or wrong, many believe that these remarks by the papacy are representative of a sympathy within the church towards Russia, which may be echoed in its peace mission that it's working on behind the scenes. The Vatican, of course, has its own relations with the Orthodox Church to consider. And it's far from being uninvested in this fight, however much it may try and position itself from above the fray. So I mention this today because we have, of course, looked at that so-called peace mission by the Vatican several times in recent months, and we don't have any more great detail as to what exactly that entails. But we know that, of course, the special envoy has been around numerous uh, key players in the war. But our understanding is that this is an attempt to try and broker some kind of peace which both sides can agree upon, rather than this being uh, a, an absolute victory for Ukraine, as Ukraine defines it, and many other Western powers define it. And as I say, this story today will lead to further unease that the Vatican is uh, not on the side of the angels on this one. Well, thank you so much for that, Francis. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome our new US editor, Tony Diver, to the podcast. Tony, the uh, US election is starting to appear in our sort of political crosshairs. It's next at uh, the end of next year, and the Republican nomination process feels like it's already, well, it is already underway. Can you talk us through the candidates and their positions on Ukraine? I think that's of premier interest to listeners of this podcast. Yeah, absolutely, David. I mean, we've had sort of a starting gun on the Republican primary uh, race, which was the TV debate hosted by Fox News uh, last week. That's the thing that's really got everyone talking about uh, the Republican primaries, both in the States and elsewhere. Um, now, the one person we didn't see in that TV debate was Donald Trump, who is still polling far ahead of everyone else. He looks, he's got between sort of 52 and 55% support among Republicans uh, in the latest polls. And then behind him, you've got Ron DeSantis, who last autumn was considered to be the sort of non-Trump front runner in the Republican race, now is kind of ailing, it's fair to say, and, and and his polling numbers look like they could easily be overtaken by the new guy who had a kind of breakout role in that debate, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is 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 running on a sort of Trump-style ticket. He's the kind of, the Trump that's not Trump is kind of his pitch to, to American voters. So those are the three that most people are talking about at the moment, but there are others and there's still a long way to go. As you point out, the election is not until November and the nomination votes don't start until January. So there's still a fair way to go before the states start voting. But 
the the others that people are talking about are Mike Pence, who, of course, was Mr. Trump's vice president. He's now running on a pretty anti-Trump ticket, uh, having pretty much turned against him during the Capitol Hill riots uh, of January the 6th. Um, and we've also got uh, Nikki Haley, who has got some foreign policy experience, uh, and Chris Christie as well, who, who uh, listeners will be aware of probably from his previous presidential bids and indeed his career in Congress. So that's the sort of broad shape of the race at the moment. Now, it's interesting, actually, that Ukraine and, and foreign policy more broadly has been a pretty major feature um, of the campaign so far. Um, and uh, I know we have a lot of listeners to this Twitter Spaces and uh, to the podcast who are from the United States, and they will be well familiar with this. But for those who aren't, it's worth pointing out that although support for Ukraine and funding of the Ukrainian forces uh, and indeed military support is pretty much a settled issue in the UK and, and elsewhere in Europe. I mean, there's no major political debate within the UK over whether or not we ought to be sending weapons and funding and humanitarian support to Kyiv. But in the United States, it's very much not the case. And while the majority of Democrats are supportive of the US's efforts to fund the war, a lot of Republicans aren't. I think it's fair to say. And, and that's reflected both among the public at large and also among Republicans on the Hill. So just to take those two individually, I mean, the, late, the latest polling shows that Republican voters are a lot more sceptical of funding of Ukraine. A 55% of Americans in general oppose Congress spending more money than it already has on the war in Ukraine, but that rises to 71% among Republicans. So that's that's sort of a big debate going on at the moment. But that is also reflected among the politicians. And so we'll be well familiar with Donald Trump's approach to foreign affairs because we saw him in the White House. But it's no surprise that he has been resistant to the idea of spending more money on funding that war. And, that, and that's echoed among two other candidates who are kind of running on a Trump style, uh, you might argue slightly more populist ticket uh, in Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, and Vivek, who was, as I said earlier, was this kind of breakout star from the debate, has probably the strongest views on the war in Ukraine. He has written a long essay for the American, American Conservative magazine in which he sets out his kind of rationale for his foreign policy. He says that he wants to run American foreign policy in the vein of Richard Nixon and the way that he ended the war in Vietnam by withdrawing American troops, the sort of Vietnamization process. Uh, listeners might remember that happened um, after that war. So he says he's going to model his approach basically on that. And actually, he's come out even strong, more strongly and said that he thinks that if America does continue to fund weapons and humanitarian and economic support in Ukraine, the war may actually end with what he describes as Ukrainian warlord in a kind of post-Zelensky Ukraine. He seems to believe that sort of continuing to support Ukraine will ultimately lead to worse outcomes for the country than if they were there were to accept territorial gains from Russia um, and, and bring the war to an early conclusion through negotiations. So he, he's sort of setting out uh, an America first policy, as he calls it, i.e. we ought to be funding uh, social security and things in America for Americans rather than sending money abroad to people fighting wars against Russia. But he's also setting it out in, in sort of more theoretical international relations terms. He describes himself as a realist and someone who's kind of power balancing in Europe. And, and if I may just dig into that slightly more, because for people like him and for Republicans on his side, Republicans on the right wing of the party, 
in Washington. They believe that the real threat to the United States and to the Western world as a whole, it doesn't come from Russia, but comes from China. Uh, and they believe that continuing to support Ukraine in its war against Russia will only lead to Russia and China forming a stronger alliance, which they believe will ultimately be a, be a bigger threat to, to the United States. So basically, it's tough on China, less tough on Russia. Uh, and Ramaswamy has said that he would go to Moscow in the first year of his presidency and, and attempt to seek some kind of rapprochement with, with Vladimir Putin in an attempt to, to balance power that way. So it's no surprise that some of those views have been very controversial, both among the public in the States and also in the Republican Party. And those who we might consider to be more on the mainstream, people like Mike Pence, people like Chris Christie and Nikki Haley, remain very supportive of Ukraine and say that under their presidencies, the funding would continue. Uh, America, can't, Nikki Haley came out and said that America can't be seen to be abandoning its friends and that it should continue to play a pretty strident role in NATO. So so that's that's the broad state of the race. And I think it is interesting that Ukraine has actually emerged as one of the main issues that the candidates disagree on, especially to those of us who may be more familiar with support for Ukraine being something that pretty much everyone supports. Thanks very much, Tony, for talking us through that. Can I ask, how has all this discussion within the Republican Party impacted, if, if you think it has at all, on President Biden's policy and the American government as, as it is? Um, do you detect that uh, how the Republicans are talking about the issue of Ukraine, how they're divided? Is that uh, shifting maybe how the White House is approaching this? Well, yes, everything that Joe Biden does in Ukraine and in Europe and with NATO always has one eye on on what Congress is saying back in Washington. And there has already been an attempt to try and limit spending by the US government on the war. As we know, any money bills that are passed have to go through both houses. And there is significant opposition from Republicans over that. So, uh, you know, those who are familiar with US politics will know that all of these things come with a, with a vast amount of horse trading and attempts to convince people to back things on pretty slim margins. So that is what's going on at the moment. And, and there is going to be an internal battle among the Republican Party over Biden's request for another $24 billion for humanitarian assistance in Ukraine in, in the coming weeks. So I think, yeah, absolutely, Joe Biden knows that the more strident he is on Ukraine, particularly when he's talking to an international audience, the more he, he runs the risk of upsetting people who do have the ability to turn the taps off back in Washington. Uh, and actually, I think one example of that, perhaps you could look at the way that the Americans behaved at the last NATO summit in Vilnius, which I was at. You saw Joe Biden there being more resistant, perhaps, than you would expect, given his previous statements uh, on Ukraine to the idea of Ukraine becoming a full member of NATO or, or indeed setting out a pathway to that happening. Uh, and, and the Americans uh, became sort of, along with the Germans, became one of the more resistant states. Whereas clearly on the other side, and, and particularly in the um, in the states that are closer to Russia, you saw much more support for that. So I think you can see the Biden administration being swayed by some of this debate that's happening back at home. And I think it's important to remember that that is going on. One more question from me, Tony. Listeners might be slightly worried by some of the things you're saying. I just wonder how worried you think they should be by some of the pronouncements we've heard from the Republican candidates. To, to what extent is this candidates, uh, potential candidates trying to uh, get attention, trying to dominate the airwaves? You know, might this all change? The, the election is still more, you know, much more than a year, year away. How worried should listeners who support Ukraine be about some of the things you've been hearing from potential Republican candidates? Well, I mean... It's worth pointing out to those people that the top three polling Republican candidates at the moment are all of this position, that the, the American efforts to support Ukraine should be curbed. Um, so it's by no means a sort of false threat, this idea that 
that that will become the prevailing view if whoever it is that is the Republican nominee after next year does indeed win the election. So I think we are already seeing some nervousness from allied states back in Europe about that. And I think more broadly, there is a question about America's ongoing role in NATO as well. And if you listen to the rhetoric of of some candidates, including Vivek Ramaswamy, you hear them talking about NATO as primarily a European defence force against Russia. They say that any money spent to protect Western allied states against Russia should be spent by European states who are most likely to be affected by it. And actually, America should sort of act as as an armour of last resort in those conflicts. And I mean, that will be very troubling for NATO allies in Europe who actually look at the proportion of money that's contributed to the the total defence budget by the United States and see that actually the whole thing pretty much hinges on America's willingness and ability to continue to to fund that war. So yeah, I think it's very much a real threat for for people who are concerned about the US's support. Then again, of course, as you point out, we are a long way from the next election. And it may well be that Joe Biden wins it anyway, in which case we may not see much for policy change. But yeah, I think there is certainly nervousness about this issue and, and there will continue to be. And I think we can expect this to be an issue that doesn't go away as the campaign continues. Well, thank you very much, Tony, for joining us. Obviously, we'll come back to you later for a final thought. Um, James, I know you had one point slash question for Tony. Hi, Tony. That was a very interesting briefing. Thank you very much. I just wondered if there was a a particular point in the last 18 months that you notice where the US public opinion or public debate or or what the the potential presidential candidates were saying shifted to being more interested in sort of reducing support for Ukraine, so to speak. I mean, I I, I always thought that the US had been stealing itself for the big fight against Russia and that this was their opportunity to, to do it, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, it's certainly the case that there are some candidates, including Donald Trump, who were unlikely to be supportive of massive American military spending abroad, regardless of where we were in the war. But I think actually, there, from a domestic point of view, the current state of the economy makes this more difficult. I mean, if you look at the kind of key signposts in in the funding by the US so far, there was a, a massive package that was uh, approved in December. And there was this kind of the war will be over by Christmas mentality going on among some in the States at that point. There was a feeling perhaps that that was the sort of final push in terms of the US Treasury's contribution. Um, and actually, you know, the economy in the States is not in a great place. Inflation is still running at about 4%. A lot of Americans feel a lot poorer. And the idea of Congress continually approving these very large sums of money to be spent on Ukraine does leave a bit of an open door, I suppose, for populists um, or skeptics who, who say that money ought to be spent domestically instead. And so sort of between December and this next round of funding, which I mentioned, this next 24 billion, which is coming up in the next month, I think there has been a bit of a bit of sort of rolling out the carpet for that view. Uh, and I think I think we can only expect that to continue if the US economy, as it seems, is indeed going to flounder for the rest of this year and the war, the war will continue and will only get more expensive. So I think that is it. I think it's in a sense, it's not that something has changed necessarily on the ground, but it's uh, the sense of attrition, I suppose, from some of these Republicans who feel that the war is very far away and they may have been happy to contribute at the beginning if they thought it was going to be over soon. But actually, the end is not that obviously in sight for some people and it becomes more and more difficult to justify the longer it goes on. 
Well, thank you very much, Tony. As I said, we'll come back to you at the end. James Kilner, can we come to you? Could we go back to Europe and talk about some of the issues that Kaya Kallas, uh, the Estonian Prime Minister, has been facing at home? So uh, this story broke, I think, last Wednesday, Thursday. The uh, Estonian public broadcaster produced a story which said that Kallas' husband has been or is rather the the owner of a company which owns a 25% stake in a logistics company called Stark, which has been continuing to transport goods to and from Russia throughout the war. These goods are not sanctioned, so legally that's a... Legally, that's on the right side of things, but Estonia has been so hardcore anti-Russian, and especially Kalas. She's really become one of the most prominent anti-Kremlin leaders in the EU, and she won a second election earlier this year in May, increasing her her vote, based primarily on on her strong anti-Russia stance. The whole Russia question in the Baltics is very complicated. Obviously, three Baltic states were controlled by Moscow from the Second World War until independence in 1991, and they have large ethnic Russian populations and ethnic and uh, Russian-speaking populations. But this, the, the fact that her husband has been involved in a company which has continued to trade with Russia throughout the war has been cited as, as a gross act of hypocrisy. And she's facing numerous calls to quit, not only from opposition politicians, who I understand were, were working on a vote of no confidence, but also within her own ruling coalition from the interior minister who said that Estonia just can't be taken seriously now until she, she goes. And then a couple of opinion polls in newspapers have also sort of suggested that most people, obviously these are opinion polls, they're snapshots, want her to resign over this issue. So she really has got herself in a model. It got worse on Friday or Saturday for her uh, when it came out that she personally had lent something in the region of about €350,000 to her husband who invested it in this uh, sort of wider holding company, which owns the stake in um, Stark Logistics, the company who's been dealing with Russia. So indirectly, people are accusing her of having a, a, an interest in, in this business, which um, has been dealing with Russia. So there's lots of problems over there. I think it's going to be a very, very complicated week for her. And, you know, whether she makes it through as leader, as the prime minister of Estonia is, is another question. Thank you very much, James. Just going to one more story that you've been writing up over the weekend was the news that came out of Ukraine of the death of a Ukrainian fighter pilot ace, Andrei Pishchulkov, uh, official callsign Juice, who died last week. You wrote up this story. Can you tell us about him? Um, why was he so well known? So this is this is a really sad story. Obviously, um, Pishchulkov was in many ways... For Ukrainians, one of the, the, the sort of pinups, the face of their air force, which we know has been sort of fighting this rear guard action, heavily outnumbered, uh, using outdated kit, etc., against the Russian air force, and they've been asking and begging the West for F-16s for, for most of the war. Now he was one of their star pilots. He's a major in the air force. He'd been in the air force for about eight years. He's he's uh, flown. Hundreds of hours of combat missions, et cetera, et cetera. And he also trained in, in the US in about 2018. That's where his, his call sign came from, Juice. It's one of the only, um, Air Force pilots with a, with a call sign. And he was given this call sign because the US, uh, he refused to drink a beer 
at any point during this sort of weeks-long training session and the US pilots nicknamed him Juice. Uh, but that's sort of an aside. He was very, very influential in giving media interviews in English to the likes of CNN, the BBC, various newspapers, etc., pushing for F-16s to be given to Ukraine. And he was sent on an official tour by Ukraine last summer to the US to speak to uh, politicians over there to try and lobby for F-16s, which we now know are going, well, Ukrainian pilots are going to be trained up on them, are being trained up on them now, I think. And then they should appear over the battlefields of Ukraine sometime at the start of next year. We know that Polishkov wanted or had aspirations to, to, to fly the F-16s himself. That's not going to happen. He was killed in a mid-air collision on Friday, flying a outdated 1960s uh, Czech, Czech-made jet, which was designed for training. Mid-air collision with another Ukrainian jet and killed him and two other pilots. It's unclear if they were on a combat mission on these training jets or whether they, they, they were just training. But I think he's been buried today in Kiev. So today is sort of the, the story of two funerals. We've got Plishkov, uh, Juice, who, who was also known as the Ghost of Kiev, this composite sort of hot-shot hot fighter pilot ace uh, that defended Kiev, Skysburg Kiev, in the initial uh, invasion of of Ukraine in, in the February and March 2022. So we've got his funeral in Kiev, and we apparently got Prigozhin's funeral, or at least the build-up to it, uh, in St. Petersburg. Thank you very much, James Kilner, Francis Turney, Tony Diver, and before Roland Oliphant. Let's move to our final thoughts then. Francis, would you like to go first? Thanks, David. Well, we've spoken a lot today about the potential strategic significance of recent Ukrainian advances, um, particularly with Robotnya. And I wanted to end with a piece that's been doing the rounds in the past 24 hours or so by Jan Kalberg. He's assistant professor in the Department of Mathematical Sciences at the US Military Academy. It's called Ukraine Victory is Closer Than You Think. And it underlines a point made by Frederick Kagan on this podcast a couple of weeks ago that Russia essentially has to succeed everywhere all of the time with regard to its front lines and its communications, etc, etc. And he doubles down on this and says that the successes that Ukraine are seeing in certain core sectors of the front may well have major implications. And I'll quote from the piece, the bleakness of the Western commentariat's recent output is striking. Those pieces that say the counteroffensive has made little progress. This is simply wrong. Intelligence analysts may look at the map of southern Ukraine and see distances. Military planners will apply the military math and see something very different. They know that to crush the Russian army and strangle the troops in frontline fortifications, they don't need to advance 50 miles. 10 miles will do it. Why? Because although it would be great if Ukrainian troops broke through to the shores of the Sea of Azov, they do not have to. Instead, they can achieve a significant operational outcome by bringing Russia's ground line of communication, its GLOC, under their guns. And this is the point, as I say, that Frederick Hagen was very keen to underline. From Robotone, Kalber goes on, the Ukrainians need to advance by a further 10 to 15 Ks in order to range their guns on Russia's east-west transport routes that are critical to the ability of its army and armed forces to fight. If Ukraine can interdict these road and rail links, it's very hard to see how the Russian army can continue to fight. 
This logistics corridor becomes increasingly narrow for every inch the Ukrainians liberate. Once the Russian assets mentioned are within Ukrainian reach, the Russian senior leadership will have an almost impossible choice to make. Will they be able to sustain operations west of Melitopol when every aspect of their fighting effort is under fire? And the piece goes into more detail about the strategic potential uh, of the successes seen in recent days. But it ends by reflecting on what this will also mean in terms of striking the Kirsch Bridge and other targets relating to Crimea. And it ends by saying that at this point, if indeed the bridge is destroyed and the, the land link to Crimea is destroyed, the Kremlin would have to make ugly choices. Either the Crimean population will suffer significant shortages during the upcoming winter or the army will go short. The Kirsch Bridge's capacity will likely not be able to supply both the western part of the front and the civilian population if severely damaged. So how will the Russians in Crimea react? We don't know. But past Ukrainian attacks have led to an exodus of civilians. That's hardly a message the Kremlin would welcome. All of which is ahead of us, he concludes. In the meantime, everything focuses on those 7 to 10 Ks, advances from from Botany and other frontline areas. As always, the fighting and dying will be done by Ukrainians, but the West absolutely must ensure that there are sufficient rocket artillery systems, ammunition and support to do the job. Now, as I say, David, this is a, an optimistic piece and it's being circulated by those who are uh, still saying that the counteroffensive can succeed. And I know that's not a, a conventional view at the present moment, but they have been consistently saying this. And if they are proven right, then, well, we may well see some, some transformations on the battlefield in the coming days and weeks. But I mention it because I think it's important to, to stress that we're not talking like we were last year of uh, hundreds of miles, hundreds of kilometres being liberated in, in advances. What the Ukrainians are trying to do is being fought on the very, very fine margins indeed. And it's in those fine margins that we may see a huge success. But it remains to be seen and, of course, depends on on the state of support that is afforded to them and, indeed, the, the, the old enemy, the weather. Thank you very much, Francis Dernley. Uh, Tony Diver. Well, David, I'm afraid I can't I hope to offer anything as erudite or well-researched as Francis just has in his final thoughts. But what I would say, if you'll forgive me, is to do a shameless plug for the work that we're doing on Telegraph US. There is a discrete and comprehensive Telegraph US site, uh, telegraph.co.uk forward slash US. And we are putting out content every day, which is on the US, about the US, um, and for both US and, and UK readers. So um, I'd urge people to, to go and have a look at that, um, as well to subscribe to the From the US Editor newsletter, which I write once a week, uh, and does a roundup of some of our, our best content from, from the US and beyond. So if, if, if you'll forgive me, I'll, I'll yeah, invade some of your airtime to do that. Uh, but I'll leave you with that there. Well, thank you very much, Tony, and we look forward to seeing you in Washington, D.C. next month. James Kilner, would you like the very final thoughts for today? So, David, I just want to highlight a, a small st- well, a story that was uh, that came out yesterday, which sort of went, went slightly underreported, I thought. And this was um, a video released by the Russian state news agency called uh, RT, used to be called Russia Today, the English language news agency, which released a video of Paul Whelan, a U.S. citizen, who has been convicted of spying, convicted in 2018, well, arrested in 2018, convicted a couple of years later, uh, sentenced 16 years in prison. And he was videoed in an all-black uniform, wearing an all-black hat, at a sewing machine in his penal colony, his prison 
in um, Moldova in central Russia. Now, as I understand it, that, that video was filmed in about May. So they waited to release it. And uh, very few things are done in Russia without calculation without some thought or timing is very significant etc we know that evan gershowitz the the arrested wall street journal journalist who was arrested earlier this year also accused of spying he's he was their russia correspondent he was arrested in yekaterinburg in the ural mountains uh, he appealed against his his internment his arrest over the weekend and it's my assumption that this video may be some sort of warning that this is uh, essentially where where his sort of trial process is heading towards, which is incredibly frustrating and sad for everyone. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Louisa Wells, and the executive producers were David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Listen to this ACAST show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.